where we have declared your worth with our lips in song, and now we want to declare it with our humbleness as we bow before you and ask you to teach us, to show us our lives, to direct us. God, may the proclamation of your word be a beautiful thing in your sight by the way it is received, as well as by what is said. May we listen as though you were speaking to us personally, because by your spirit, that's what happens here. May we respond with joyful obedience, no matter what you ask of us this hour. So Lord, find pleasure in these moments as we sit under your word in Christ's name. Amen. One of the privileges and responsibilities I have from time to time as a pastor is to speak at someone's funeral. And those are always words... Uh, that you want to choose with extraordinary care and often difficult to know exactly what to say, especially if you're doing the funeral of someone who is a bit of a scoundrel. Um, The story is told that just such a situation came up amongst uh, two brothers who lived in a small town. They were both greedy, selfish scoundrels. And uh, all of a sudden, one of the brothers died in a lavish funeral was planned. The surviving brother came to the minister one day and asked if the minister would like a few thousand dollars to pay for a much-needed roof repair in their small church in their small town. And the pastor said, of course I would. And uh, he expected, though, that from this brother there might be a catch, and there was. He said, well, I'm prepared to write a check right here and now for the entire repair on one condition. You have to promise to say at my brother's funeral that he was, in fact, a saint. The minister reflected for a moment, and he agreed. He took the check and quickly cashed it. And word of this little deal got out into that small town, and so on that day, that little church was packed out. And uh, the minister delivered the following eulogy. He said, here lies Fred. We all know he was a scheming, two-faced, evil scoundrel. He lied and cheated his way through life. Gathering about him the most despicable people you never want to meet or associate with. And together they lied to, cheated, and stole from just about everyone in our town that they ever did business with. The congregation gasps at what's going on. And the brother starts to get restless. The surviving brother starts to get restless on the first row there. The pastor finished his closing remarks by saying, But compared to his brother, he was a saint. Well, it's, it's one of those scenarios where what-do-you-say kind of scenarios that we find ending the book of 1 Samuel today. Um, David has to figure out what does he say when his enemy, his arch enemy, who is also the anointed king of Israel, what does he say at the death of Saul? Um, in Samuel Chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 31, that's where we find ourselves. Saul dies in this chapter. And how is David going to respond? Now, I do want to warn you, parents of young children, at the close of this message, I have to deal with a topic that's a little sensitive. Um, I, nothing inappropriate will be said, but you'll have some splaining to do when you get home. So just be ready in case some questions come your way. All right? Uh, But at the beginning of our text in chapter 31, the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled 
before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. So Saul and his sons, his three sons, die at the hand of the Philistines. And the great tragedy of this whole thing is that these are the people whom Saul was appointed and anointed king to conquer. You may remember back in chapter 9, God is speaking to the prophet Samuel. And he says, about this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. That man was Saul. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. But Saul dies a tragic death at the end of a tragic life. Just as the spirit of Samuel had predicted the night before. You remember when Saul went to that... uh, psychic or medium or seer, whatever you want to call her, at Endor and called up the spirit of Samuel. You remember what his words were to Saul? He said these words back in chapter 28. Because, Saul, you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over both you, both Israel and you, to the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. So what we're witnessing in this chapter is a fulfillment of a prophecy that came through the spirit of Samuel the night before. Just just as God said it would. And it is the judgment of God upon Saul for a disobedient life. The same story is recounted in the book of 1 Chronicles, but it has this summary statement at the end of it. It says, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Back in our story, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor. And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fashioned his body to the wall of the city of Bethshan. Saul's body, not only does he die, but now his body is desecrated by the Philistines and flaunted in their pagan temples. The only encouraging remark that comes in this whole chapter, the next few verses, when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them and then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted seven days. 
So these valiant men reclaim the body of Saul and dispose of it honorably. These men were from Jabesh Gilead. It's a town where Saul had done a great rescue early in his uh, career as king. Uh, They had been captured by their enemies and they surrendered and they said, you know, we'll be your servants, just let us live. And they said, we'll let you live if you'll let us gouge out the right eye of every man in your city. And they cried for help to the other Israelite towns and Saul heard of it and he came and delivered them mightily. And so now to honor that act, they come and and bury his, uh, his body as honorably as they could. So Saul's life is not all bad. He accomplished some good things, some military victories, the removal of the mediums and seers from the land. But the tragedy is what could have been in Saul's life. If only, if only he had been faithful, if only he had kept the word of the Lord. He was promised victory over these same Philistines. What would it have been like? Um, Back in chapter 12, when Saul was just coming in as king, Samuel says to the people, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and don't rebel against his commands, and if both you and your king, the king who reigns over you, follow the Lord your God, good. If the king leads you to follow God, it will be good with you. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your father's. What great deeds would Saul have accomplished? What tragedy would have been spared the nation? Surely they wouldn't now be abandoning their cities and fleeing the Philistines. Surely Saul's body wouldn't be hanging on a Philistine wall and and his armor being paraded through the pagan temples of the Philistines. The name of Yahweh would not be mocked among the Philistines. If only Saul had been faithful, if he'd only kept the word of the Lord. You know, what's interesting to me is this closing chapter in Saul's life, God is not mentioned once. And just as God had been largely absent from the latter part of Saul's life, now he's absent from his death as well. There's just no mention. And whenever you're at a funeral, it makes you think about death. And when you see something like this happen, you have to wonder, what will your legacy be at the end of your life? Will God even be mentioned there? Will he just be a little sidebar? And he was a faithful church attendant. I mean, will you be found fully faithful? Will it be said of you that you kept his word? That you sought God? Will it be said of you the opposite of what was said of Saul? That you were faithful to the Lord? That you kept the word of the Lord? And that you consulted and inquired only of the Lord? You sought Him with all your heart? I found a a heartening testimony along these lines. You remember back in February of 2003... The space shuttle Columbia exploded upon re-entry 16 minutes before it was to land um, and complete its 16-day scientific mission. One member of that crew was a man named Rick Husband. He's actually the captain of that crew. He's described as a quiet, unassuming man who was, however, very vocal about his faith in Jesus Christ. 
He didn't miss an opportunity to give glory to God. And when Mission Control said it was a beautiful day for a launch, Rick responded with, the Lord has given us a perfect day. You have to love our astronauts saying those kinds of things to Mission Control. A suit technician shared the following story. He said that after the astronauts suit up, they walked down a hallway and then opened a door to face the press. Rick stopped the crew before they opened the door and said he wanted to pray for them. And the technicians talked about it, and one of them said that in all his years, he had never heard of a captain praying for and with his crew. The spouses of the crew each get to pick a song for them to wake up one of the, morning, one of the mornings when they're in space, and Rick's wife selected God of Wonders. The conversation with Mission Control went something like this. Mission Control, good morning. That song was for Rick. It was God of Wonders by Steve Green. Rick, good morning. Thank you. We can really appreciate the lyrics of that song up here. We look out the window and see that God truly is a God of Wonders. Rick, before he left, made 34 devotionals. He videotaped them. 17 for his young son and 17 for his young daughter, one for each day of the mission, so that they could have devotions with dad every day he was gone. You know, life is unpredictably short. Finish it well by living well now, with God central and our obedience full, so that when your time comes for them to speak of your life, you don't have to make stuff up. You know, let's just be honest. I'm the odds-on favorite to do your funeral at this point in time, okay? <laughs> I mean, for most of you, I'm probably the guy. Okay? And I don't want to stand up here and make you sound like something you weren't. You know, I want to stand up and say, this man followed Christ, and he led his family to follow Christ, and he spoke of Christ at work, and he repented well and often, and she loved her neighbors, and she shared Christ with them, and she served them, and she mentored her children in the faith. They spoke out at school. They weren't silent. They honored God. Because someday somebody's going to stand up and they're going to speak about your life. What will they say? Life is unpredictably short. Live it well now by making God central. In Saul's life, he was marginalized and absent in the tributes that were paid to Saul at his death. Well, it continues on into the first chapter of 2 Samuel. These two books really are just one story woven together. We find that after the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Remember, he'd gone back to rescue his wife and children and family who'd been taken captive, and he rescued everybody and got everything back and had all this tremendous plunder. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. And when he came to David... He fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. 
At this point in time, from this point forward, Samuel has died. Now Saul has died. The focus is primarily on David through the rest of our story in 2 Samuel. This messenger comes to David, having run, best I can calculate, nearly 100 miles to bring him word of Saul's death. David said to the young man who brought the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? And he asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and had brought them here. To my Lord. Now, at first reading, there's an obvious conflict here. In the last chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul killed himself. Now, in 2 Samuel, we have this Amalekite coming saying, No, I killed him. What's, what's that about? Perhaps one of two explanations would be helpful. Um, perhaps the accounts can simply be harmonized. Um, Saul did try to kill himself. And then his armor-bearer killed himself, but he didn't die immediately, and the um, Amalekite came along and finished the job. Perhaps it's as simple as that. But a number of scholars think that what was really happening here is that the Amalekite is lying. That he is telling David something he thinks David wants to hear. Just a couple chapters ahead in 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 4... David recounts this incident and he says, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble, when a man told me Saul is dead, the incident we're talking about, and thought he was bringing good news, so this guy thought David would be excited because Saul, his enemy, was dead. David says, When that happened, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. So it may very well be that he was scavenging around amongst the bodies there and got the the crown and the band and came and then trumped up his story in order to get a reward, a further reward from David for killing David's enemy. He thought he was bringing him good news, but he was sorely mistaken. Back in our passage, David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them as a sign of mourning. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. Now the Amalekites were the people that Saul got in big trouble for because he wouldn't kill their king. And the Amalekites are also the people whom David just did kill. And now we have an Amalekite bringing word of Saul's death all woven throughout here. David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David continues to be fully and deeply committed to not harming the Lord's anointed. 
just as he would not harm Saul in the cave when he had a chance or in Saul's camp when he was fast asleep and David came upon him and could have killed him. Now he meets out justice for the one who would dare to perform the act that David himself would not dare to do. And you need to know, when you think about application to this, this is why you shouldn't mess with your pastor. Okay? Don't lay your hand on the Lord's anointed. Just tuck right there in the margin of your Bible. Actually, um, it's not really it doesn't have anything to do with your pastor, but it, I think it does have some application for us. If, if the penalty was this swift and this severe upon this Amalekite for bringing about the death of a compromised king, of a king who was a disappointment as a king, how much more severe will the judgment be of the ones who bring about the death of the great king, Jesus? By their sins. Because just as the Amalekite was guilty of Saul's death, there's a sense in which we're all implicated in the death of Christ. Because he didn't die for his own sins. It was someone else's sin who cost him his life. Maybe one more. Romans chapter 4 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It was our sins that put Christ on the cross. Again, the heart of the gospel, Paul says, is that Christ died for our sins. And that's the heart of the good news. And that's why we call it good news. Because it wasn't just that our sins put him on the cross. But on the cross, he paid and took our sins away. It's why it's good news. It's why he's the great king. Our sins didn't just bring about his death, but his death bore our sins and the penalty for those sins away. Hebrews chapter 9, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. See, we all bear the guilt of the Amalekite. Our sins cost the life of God's anointed king. But the good news is that by faith, that same death brought about by our our sins bears the penalty for our sins for us. So you can see how important it is to have a right relationship with Christ, to have placed your trust in Him. The stakes are, are very, very high. But now we're to our question. What will David say at the funeral, so to speak? Of his enemy. In verse 17, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It's written in the book of Jasher, he says. This is the poem or the song that David wrote for Saul and his son Jonathan. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, those are Philistine cities, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, that's where Saul died, 
May you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. So he's praising their military prowess. He says, Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious. David says of Saul, he was loved and gracious. And in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. David's response here is amazing. Not even one hint of rejoicing over his enemy's demise. Not even a little, I told you so. Nothing but kind and gracious words. He, he models for us a reverence for God's anointed and compassion for his enemy. See, at his best, and in this chapter, David is at his best. David's trust is in God and his concern is for others, even above his own. This is the path we want to follow. Reverence for God's anointed and concern even for our enemies. Our calling is to bless those who curse us, to overcome evil with good, to love even our enemies. So what have you been saying about your enemies lately? About your competitors? About your in-laws? What have you been saying? See, we bless those who curse us, that ornery neighbor, we bless them. We overcome evil with good. We, we bless those who compete you know, with low integrity against us in the marketplace. Remarkable example of this is a lady named Victoria Ruvolo, um, 45 years old from New York, who is uh, driving to her niece's voice recital when she passed another car driven by 19-year-old Ryan Cushing. Cushing was riding with five other teens, they just used a stolen credit card to go on a spending spree, and one of their purchases was a frozen turkey, which Cushing decided to toss into oncoming traffic. The 20-pound projectile smashed through Rivola's windshield, crushing her face. Amazingly, she survived, though she spent 10 hours in an operating room having her face rebuilt. When she went home, finally, she brought a tracheotomy tube and endured months of painful rehabilitation. But on October 17th of that year, she attended Cushing's sentencing and asked his judge for leniency. This is part of her statement. She said, despite all the fear and the pain, I have learned from this horrific experience and I have much to be thankful for. Each day when I wake up, I thank God simply because I'm alive. I sincerely hope you have also learned from this awful experience, Ryan. There is no room for vengeance in my life, she says. And I do not believe a long, hard prison term would do you, me, or society any good. Cushing, who wept and expressed remorse for his action, was sentenced to six months in jail. He could have gotten 25 years if Victoria had not intervened. This is what she says. I truly hope 
Ryan, that by demonstrating compassion and leniency, I have encouraged you to seek an honorable life. If my generosity will help you mature into a responsible, honest man whose graciousness is a source of pride to your loved ones and your community, then I will truly be gratified and my suffering will not have been in vain. Ryan, prove me right. Bless those who curse you. Overcome evil with good. Love your enemies. This is the path that David walked, anticipating the path that Christ would walk and paving the path that we're supposed to walk. He's exemplary in what he responds here. The closing verses of his lament turn to his thoughts about Jonathan. And he says, How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you. Jonathan, my brother, remember this is his best friend. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Now, simply because of the culture uh, that we live in, there's a bit of a distraction here that I want to address just for a moment this morning. Um, It says, your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. And if you go on the internet, I wouldn't recommend this, it would be a colossal waste of your time, but you'll find that much of the discussion centers around advocating that Jonathan and David were gay, that this was a homosexual relationship. And there's quite a bit of of, uh, evidence that's marshaled for that. Um, For instance, uh, early on, they talked about their souls delighting in one another and being knit together. And uh, this language is assumed to mean that they were involved in a romantic relationship together. Well, the language doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, For instance, the same language back in Genesis 44, um, Judah is talking about his affection, or it's being spoken of Judah's affection for his youngest son. Judah is very, very old, and his son is very, very young. And he says, if the boy's not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, if my father whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life. It's the same expression that's used to show the way David and Jonathan's hearts were knit together as brothers. It's the same way a father loves his young son. There's no hint of any sexuality or romantic involvement in this phrase, necessarily. Also, um, the way that they express their love and affection for one another is consistent with what was language that was used in political covenants. Remember, their relationship was not only as brothers, um, because David had been engrafted into Saul's family through marriage, and as friends, but also they had made a political alliance together, where David would rule and Jonathan would be second. And if you look in 1 Kings 5, it says that Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David. He sent envoys to Solomon... Because he'd always been on friendly terms. Some of your Bibles will say he'd always loved David. It just means that he'd had a right covenant relationship with him. The language of love is the language of covenant. Again, it doesn't imply anything about a homosexual relationship between Hiram and David. It's the language of those political military covenants that had been made in that day. Now, it's also been pointed out that David and Jonathan kiss. Well, the term that's used for that kiss occurs 35 times in the Old Testament. As I understand it, um, only four times is it a romantic kiss. The other 31, it's the normal way that men greeted and showed brotherly affection one to another. So the vast majority of times that this term is used, it's not romantic. Um, 
Now, I wouldn't recommend that you, that you use this form of greeting in our particular culture today. Okay. High five might be better um, or something like that. But in their day, it was a common way that men greeted one another and showed brotherly affection one for another. Plus, homosexual acts, and this I think is critical, are expressly forbidden and condemned in Jewish law, which David and the Jews were operating under scrupulously at this point in time. Leviticus 18 says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable or that is an abomination, some of your Bibles read. Also, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable and they must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So you understand that for David and Jonathan, if they had been involved in a homosexual relationship, the penalty was death. And what you have to remember is that David writes this lament, and who does he want to teach it to? Well, David took this lament up concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. He ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament. Now imagine David's mighty men being taught by David a lament that celebrated homosexual love with his partner, Jonathan. What do you think the almighty men, gung-ho warriors, would have gladly done to David? I mean, it's just totally infeasible culturally, as well as linguistically, that that's what's going on here. Um, It only makes sense that way when we read our current sexually wayward culture back into that day. To simply read it and say, what would they have understood? They would not have understood it that way. So some of you have friends who for a variety of reasons may raise this issue with you. I hope that these simple responses are ways you can very graciously help them see that this is not what the scriptures are teaching and not affirming that kind of relationship, but merely affirming a great friendship between men. David, it says that he loved Jonathan more than women. Now, that's not uncommon for warriors. Lots of guys have better relationships with their warrior buddies than they do their wives. Especially if you have eight wives, like David did, and a bunch of concubines. Believe me, David had issues with his sex life, but it was with women. Not with men, not with Jonathan. There's no indication of that from the text. So hopefully that will help you uh, should you encounter that or should you have the chance to help someone understand that. And again, I hope you'll do that in a most gracious and kind way. But anyway, the challenge for us from this text today is not to die like Saul with God in the margins, not even mentioned, but to live like David with great reverence for the anointed king and great grace towards our worst enemies. And so this morning, we have that chance as a church family to come to the Lord's table and to remember and honor our great anointed king, King Jesus. On the night in which he was betrayed... Our great King Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this, this is my body and it's broken for you. And in the same way, after the meal, 
took a cup and he said, this cup contains the new covenant of my blood for the remission of your sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we come now to remember and to honor you as our king. We come in humble obedience out of love for you, for the way you have loved us. For indeed, it was because of our sins that you had to die. And you chose to do that willingly because of your great and your Father's great love for us. And so here we are to remember. To remember the cost of such a love. To remember what it took for us to be clean and for us to be free. It took a man's body, an innocent man's body, nailed to a tree, and an innocent man's blood to be shed on our behalf. So Jesus, as we come to table today, we do it to remember you and to honor you, not only in this act, but in responding to what you've spoken to us about today as we leave this place, to live lives where you are so central that honor you right up until the end. And Jesus, we do ask this in your name.